0: Good morning, everyone. A Very happy Resurrection Sunday to you. And we rejoice this day in the risen Savior who has come to die for our sins. I want to thank Ed for sharing with us that amazing testimony of God's grace. And also thank you, Praise Team, for ministering to us in song. If you have your Bibles this morning, I'd like to invite you to turn in them to the 15th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and if you don't have a Bible this morning, the verses are printed in your bulletin, and you can find it there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and our scripture reading this morning is going to come from verses 20 to 28. 1 Corinthians 15 starting in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ, then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, And the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. 110 people are banking on the idea that modern science will find a fountain of youth. these 110 people, all of whom are deceased, are quote-unquote patients of the Alcor Life Extension Institute in Scottsdale, Arizona. Their bodies, or for some of them, merely their heads, have been frozen in liquid nitrogen at a temperature of minus 320 degrees Fahrenheit. And they are awaiting the day when medical science will discover a way to make death and aging a thing of the past. 34 of these patients have have paid $200,000 to have their entire body frozen. And the other 70 or so patients have paid $80,000 to have only their head frozen, hoping that in the future, one day, molecular technology will be able to grow a whole new body from their head or its cells. Now, this sounds like science fiction, but it's called cryonics. And as you can imagine, cryonics has its share of critics and skeptics. Stephen Bridge, the former president of Alcor, cautions that we have to tell people we don't know if it will work yet. And yet Thomas Donaldson, who is a 50-year-old member of Alcor and who has not taken advantage of its services yet, has brushed aside the naysayers and explained to a reporter why he's willing to give cryonics a try. And he said this, for some strange reason, I like being alive. I don't want to die. Throughout the history of the world, men have sought to escape death, And sometimes men have gone to some very extreme measures. And yet the Bible proclaims this unavoidable truth. That death is the inevitable end of all. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says, It is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. Judgment. Psalm 90, verse 10 says, The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80, yet their span is but toil and trouble, and they are soon gone, and we fly away. In Genesis chapter 5, we have the first genealogy in the Bible. It is a genealogy that is so stark and so unrelenting that some have called it the genealogy of death. This genealogy comes right after the curse of man in Genesis chapter 3. And it reads like this Adam lived and he died. The days of Seth were 912 years and he died. The days of Enosh were 905 years and he died The days of Kenan were 910 years and he died The days of Mahalalel were 895 years and he died The days of Jared were 962 years and he died The days of Methuselah were 969 years And he died. And he died. And he died. And he died. The history of man is the history of death. Romans 5.12 says, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death Spread to all men because all sinned. And the history of man has not changed since Genesis chapter 5. In fact, the only thing that's changed is that our lifespans have gotten shorter, not longer. In 2011, Vaclav Havel died. He was the famous playwright and the president of the Czech Republic. In 2011, Christopher Hitchens died. He was an outspoken atheist, a writer, and a journalist. Five months ago, the famous boxer Joe Frazier died. He was a former heavyweight champion who lost only four times in his career. Andy Rooney, the commentator of the new show 60 Minutes. Al Davis, the owner of the Oakland Raiders. Clarence Clemens, the saxophonist for the E Street Band. Arthur Lawrence, famous playwright who wrote West Side Story. Patrice O'Neill, comedian and actor on the TV show, The Office. Elizabeth Taylor, movie legend. Jack Lane, fitness guru. Whitney Houston, recording artist. Joe Paterno, football coach. And he died, and he died, and he died. The history of man is the history of death. And friends, you and I are not exempt from this story. I know many of you are young. You are in your teens or your 20s. And you think that the story of death does not apply to you. And I would say to you this morning that death is no respecter of persons. And in fact, death is no respecter of of age. The young die and the old die because death is the inevitable end of all. James chapter 4, verse 13 says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit you do not know what tomorrow will bring what is your life for you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes you might be saying Dan, wait a second I thought Easter was a happy holiday I thought we came to Rejoice and have hope. I thought we came to dress in bright colors and celebrate life. Why all this talk about death and dying? Why paint such a grim picture of the history of man? It is because, dear friends, we can only celebrate The good news of what God has done for us in Christ when we have rightly understood the bad news of our condition. And the bad news of our condition is very dark indeed. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. We are all sinners, and therefore, we die. In the words of one man, Jesus is the answer. But have we understood the question? The question is this. How will we deal with the reality of death? How will you deal with the reality of death? And so I want to bring you to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. A passage which deals with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in this passage we are going to find three glorious truths which will transform our perspective on death. Paul presents to us three glorious truths in this text which communicate to us the triumph of Jesus over death and how by faith we can enter into that triumph. The first truth is found in verse 20. And the truth is this. Jesus Christ has risen from the grave Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. That's exactly what Paul says in verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, before we move on to the implications of that, before we move on to insights about that, let's just take time to savor that great reality. Christ has been raised from the dead. He was crucified on the cross in order to pay for our sins. He was buried in the tomb. And then on the third day, on Sunday, Christ was raised From the dead. This is the basic proclamation of the Christian church. This is the foundational truth underneath all that we believe. This is the pinnacle of redemptive history. Christ has been raised from the dead. And this is the message that has been proclaimed throughout all the New Testament Scriptures. 1 Corinthians fifteen three. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And as the angel proclaimed to the two women In Matthew 28, verse 5, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Christ has been raised from the dead. And you'll notice in verse 20, the, the introductory words of that verse, Paul says, but in fact... Christ has been raised. Those words signal a contrast to what has been said before. In the previous passage, Paul had been discussing the disastrous consequences if Christ has not been raised. He presents the hypothetical scenario. What if Jesus has not been raised from the grave? What if he is still in the tomb? What if the crucifixion is the end of the story and Jesus has not been raised? There are disastrous consequences for the Christian faith. Verse 14, if Christ is not raised, then our preaching is in vain. We ought to pack it all up and go home this morning. Because our preaching is in vain if Christ is not raised. Verse 14, if Christ is not raised, then your faith is in vain. Don't talk to me about the blessings and the benefits of being a Christian. Your faith is in vain if Christ is not raised. In fact, verse 15 says that if Jesus Christ is not raised, then we have been misrepresenting God. We are liars. We are phonies. We are frauds. Christians have perpetuated the greatest fraud in the history of the world if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. Furthermore, if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. If Jesus Christ is not raised, then there is no salvation and there is no forgiveness. You are still in your sins. You are still condemned. You are still under judgment if Christ has not been raised. And in verse 18, Paul sums it all up. Verse 19 is saying, if Jesus is not raised from the grave, then we are of all people most to be pitied. You ought to pity us because we're believing a lie if Christ has not been raised. We are deluded. We are frauds. We are phonies. Our faith is futile if Christ has not been raised from the grave. You get the idea in this passage that the resurrection is important. You get the idea that the Christian faith stands or falls upon the historical event of Christ's physical bodily resurrection? So in verse 20, after presenting these disastrous consequences, Paul reverses the scenario and he proclaims with apostolic authority, but now, but now, and those two words reverse The scenario that has been found in verses 13 to 19. Christ has been raised from the dead. You'll notice that the tenor of Paul's words in verse 20 is not argument. He is not seeking to give arguments and reasons why we should believe in the resurrection. No, Paul is proclaiming with authority the historical Truth that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. And implied in this statement is the reversal of the entire scenario in verses 13 to 19. Our preaching is not in vain because Christ has been raised. Our faith is not futile because Christ has been raised from the grave. We are not still in our sins because Jesus is alive. And we of all people are not those to be pitied. We of all people are those to be envied. Because we have believed in a risen Savior who is alive today and reigning in heaven. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, the apostle Peter preached the resurrection on the day of Pentecost. He said, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This Jesus, God raised up. And of all that, we are all witnesses. Peter preached this message and 3,000 people came to Christ. The church was birthed in the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And as Peter preached the resurrection of Christ, we find that Paul takes the mantle In Acts chapter 13, and he continues to preach the resurrection as well. Acts 13, verse 23, he says, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. God raised him from the dead. And we bring to you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you cannot be freed by the law of Moses. And verse 48 says, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many who are appointed to eternal life believed. See the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the power of the church. The resurrection of the Christ is the message of the church. Our message is not morals. Our message is not ethics. Our message is not how to have a good life. Our message is Jesus Christ, the son of God, him crucified for the forgiveness of sins and risen again in triumph and in glory. And this message is the message that transforms lives. In John 11, verse 25, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives lives And believes in me shall never die. And then he added this question, which is very important. The question is this. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? That's the question, isn't it? Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Do you believe in Jesus Christ crucified, risen again? Do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? Because Jesus says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Thomas said in John chapter 20, verse 25, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And Jesus appeared and said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve. believe. And Thomas answered with one of the great confessions that is found in all of the New Testament. And he said, my Lord and my God. And I pray that that would be the confession of everyone here this morning. Do not disbelieve. But believe. Be not unbelieving. But believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Fall to your knees in awestruck wonder. And proclaim to Jesus, You are my Lord and my God. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And so the first truth Paul gives us in this passage is that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. And that brings us to the second truth that is found in this text. The second truth is simply this. Believers in Christ will rise from the grave. Believers in Christ will rise from the grave. Verse 20, Paul says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now there are two resurrections in the plan of God. There are two resurrections, not just one. The first resurrection is the resurrection of Jesus. That resurrection occurred in the past. But there is a second resurrection in the plan of God. And the second resurrection is the resurrection of believers. And that resurrection will occur in the future. Two resurrections, not just one. The resurrection of Jesus and then the resurrection of believers. And Paul's point in verse 20 is to show the inseparable link between these two resurrections. Is to show that the resurrection of Christ cannot be viewed in isolation. In fact, in Paul's view, the two resurrections are not really even two separate events. They are really two installments of one massive harvest. And so he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead and Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits. That's talking about the first installment of a harvest. The first fruits, that's talking about the first sample of a greater harvest which is yet to come. You can imagine having a a massive harvest of an apple crop, and you take one bucket of apples, and that's the first fruits. Or imagine with me a massive harvest of oranges on trees, and you take One basket of oranges, and that's the first fruits. And Paul says here that the resurrection of Christ was the first fruits, it's the first sample of the greater harvest. There is a massive harvest of resurrections which are yet to come, and the resurrection of Christ anticipates the believer's resurrection. We came here this morning to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul does zero in and focus on the resurrection of Jesus in verse 20, but then he zooms out. And he shows us with a wide-angle lens how the resurrection of Jesus has a connection to something in the future. It is the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep, of those who have died in Christ. They too shall be raised. And if you want to know what that future resurrection will look like, just take a look at the firstfruits. Christ's resurrection was bodily. It was a physical resurrection. And so we will be raised from the dead. When Jesus rose from the grave, he had fingers, he had arms, he had legs, he had a face that could be recognized, and so shall our resurrection be. After Jesus rose and appeared to the disciples, he ate breakfast. He walked from point A to point B on the earth. He conversed in human relationship. And he is the first fruits. It's the first bucket. There's a larger resurrection that is yet to come. And Christ's resurrection both anticipates the future resurrection and it guarantees it. He is the firstfruits Of those who have fallen asleep. John chapter 5, verse 28 says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise. There is a future resurrection that is yet to come. And this future resurrection is the great hope of the believer in Christ. It is this future resurrection that proclaims to us that death is not the end. It is only the beginning of a glorious new life in Christ. It is the doctrine of the future resurrection that will comfort us when we are on our deathbed. That one day, because Jesus rose, so shall I. Death, thy sting is gone forever, and it is the doctrine of the future resurrection that will sustain us in our sufferings as we live here on earth. Johnny Erickson Tata is a saint who has encouraged me greatly through her writings over the years. When she was only 17 years old, she broke her neck in a diving accident. And so for 45 years, she has lived her life as a quadriplegic. And so Johnny has thought much about her future resurrected body. And she writes the following story of visiting her future gravesite. She says, Not long ago, my mother-in-law purchased a family grave plot at Forest Lawn. However, she could not sign the papers until my husband Ken and I looked at the lot and gave our approval. I could have come up with better ways to spend a Sunday afternoon, but being the submissive wife, I trekked to Forest Lawn. We looked at my gravesite, located in a section called Murmuring Pines, and listened to the realtor that's what her name tag said. Remind me that with my head here and with my feet there, I would have a grand view of the valley and the distant mountains. I mumbled with a hint of sarcasm. That's important. The realtor and my family conferred over papers as they wandered toward the next plot. I powered my wheelchair onto the top of my gravesite and turned to gaze at the range of mountains. And suddenly it struck me that I was sitting on the exact spot where my actual body will rise. Should I die before Christ comes? Astonishing, actual spirits will return to actual graves and reunite with stone-cold dead forms. And in the twinkling of an eye, we shall be changed. We shall come forth and rise strong and brilliant with hands and arms, feet and legs. And like Jesus with his glorious body, we will be perfectly fitted for both earth and heaven. Sitting in my wheelchair under the pines, it was enough to spill tears. That grassy hillside ignited the reality of the resurrection, wrapping sight sound, and touch around all the sermons and essays i would ever read on the subject. The hymn writer put it this way, Jesus lives, and so shall I. Death, thy sting, is gone forever. He who deigned for me to die lives the bands of death to sever. He shall raise me From the dust. Jesus is my hope and trust. And so the first truth is that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. And the second truth that Paul presents is that the believers in Christ shall rise from the grave. In verse 21, Paul expands on that theme, saying, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Paul's point here is that the resurrection of Jesus cannot be viewed in isolation. Just as Adam's sin had an effect on all those who come after Adam, so... The resurrection of Jesus has an impact upon all those who will come after, who are found in Christ. Verse 22, he says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. All those who are found in Christ will be made alive on that resurrection day. And Paul gives us the sequence of God's resurrection plan in verse 23. He says, each in his own order. I told you there's two resurrections. The resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of believers. And it has a very simple order. Verse 23, first, Christ, the first fruits. That's the first resurrection that's already occurred. Then secondly, At his coming, those who belong to Christ. That's the second resurrection. The resurrection of believers. Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. And so believers in Christ will rise as well. And that brings us to the third truth that is found in this passage. The third truth is so essential. It's so important for understanding. Jesus has risen from the grave. Believers in Christ will rise from the grave. And the third truth is simply this, that all of this, all of this resurrection plan, the two resurrections in the plan of God, is all to the glory of God the Father. It is all to, to the glory of God the Father. Now we're really getting the big picture here. We came here zeroed in on the resurrection of Jesus Christ and Paul zoomed us out and showed us the bigger picture. Christ is the first fruits of those who believe And now we are looking at this big picture of this massive harvest of resurrections which is still to come at the second coming of Jesus Christ. And what Paul does at this point is he zooms us out even more. And he shows us how the resurrection of believers has an even greater purpose. And the purpose of the resurrection of believers in the future is to the glory of God the Father. Look at what Paul says in verse 24. He's already talked about the resurrection of Jesus. He's already talked about the resurrection of believers. And now in verse 24 he says, Then comes the end. The end. You say, what do you mean, Paul? The end. You mean there's more? You mean there's more to the story than future resurrection? You mean this glorious harvest of the believer's resurrection is not the end of the story? I mean, I'd be perfectly content if the story ended there. I'm in my resurrected body. I'm in heaven. What do you mean by the end? Paul says here, then comes the end, the telos in the Greek. The purpose, the goal, the climax, the culmination, the ultimate purpose behind these two resurrections. And what is the purpose behind these two resurrections? Verse 24, the end is when he, that is Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Do you know what's going to happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ? What's going to happen at the second coming of Jesus Christ is that the Father is going to give the son a kingdom. The father is going to give the son a kingdom. And this kingdom will encompass a number, a host of rulers and authorities and power which will all be brought under the authority of Christ. That's the kingdom that the Father is going to give to the Son. And verse 25 mentions this kingdom. Paul says, For he, that is Christ, must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That's a reference back to Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. You see, in the Old Testament, the Father promised the Son a kingdom. The Father said to the Son, I will give you a kingdom. I will make your enemies your footstool. I will put all power and authority under your feet. And the promise of this kingdom was repeated in passages such as Psalm 2, verse 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You see, the Father promised the Son a kingdom. And when Jesus comes in power and glory, the Father fulfills the promise that was made in the Old Testament and gives to the Son this kingdom of subjects. He brings all power, all rule, all authority under Christ so that Jesus Christ reigns over all. The Father gives to the Son this kingdom. And you say, Dan, how does this relate to the two resurrections that we've seen in this text? How does this relate to my resurrection when I will be raised from the grave? How does this relate to Christ's resurrection which we celebrate on this Easter Sunday? Look at verse 26. Paul says, the last enemy to be Destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Do you know what needs to happen for the Father to give to the Son this kingdom? Do you know what needs to happen for the Father to fulfill the promise that he made in the Old Testament? What needs to happen for the Father to give the kingdom to the Son is that the Father needs to bring all enemies under Christ's feet. All rule, all authority, all power, every enemy needs to be brought in subjection to Christ. Now follow this. In order for the Father to bring all enemies under Christ, the Father must bring the enemy of death in subjection to Christ so that Christ rules over death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You ask, how does this relate to the believer's resurrection? Let me ask you this question. What would be the greatest way for the Father to demonstrate the Son's authority over death? What would be the most dramatic expression of the Son's authority which would display to all rule and all power and all authorities that Jesus Christ has his feet firmly planted over the enemy death. What would be the most dazzling demonstration of that great truth? Would not the most dramatic expression Of the Son's authority over death be to raise up in bodily physical form millions and millions of men and women who have placed their faith in the Son Jesus Christ. To raise them up physically, bodily, from the grave in a massive, glorious harvest of resurrection. To proclaim to all the rulers and powers and authority that Jesus Christ now rules over death. Would not the greatest expression of the Son's rule over all be to raise up all those who belong to him? And so you say, how does the resurrection of believers fit into this great plan for the Father to give to the Son a kingdom? It is the Father bringing the last enemy death under the authority of Jesus Christ. I believe the resurrection of believers, which is to come, will be the in-your-face demonstration that this last enemy, death, is now under Christ's feet. And when the enemy of death is under Christ's feet, the kingdom will be complete. Because he says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The words of verse 27 will be brought to pass, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And at this point, Paul makes a footnote. This is a footnote in verse 27. Here it comes. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. Paul is saying all things are brought in subjection under Christ, but there is one Exception. And who is that exception? It's the Father. It's the Father who is accepted from being placed in submission to the Son. Why is it the Father who is is the exception of being under Christ's feet? Because it is the Father who brings all things under Christ's feet. And so Paul says in verse 27 that it is plain that he, the Father, is accepted. Because it is the Father who put all things in subjection under the Son. You say, why does Paul make that footnote? Why is it so important that we understand that exception? Paul makes that footnote. Because he wants to set up the dramatic finale. The ultimate end to God's redemptive plan. The telos, the purpose, the end, the goal, the climax, the culmination of all that God has done in redemptive history. Including the resurrection of Christ in the past and the resurrection of believers in the future is that when the Father gives this kingdom to the Son, and when all things are brought underneath Christ's feet, the Son responds by reciprocating the Father's love. And he gives the kingdom right back to the Father. And in giving the kingdom back to the Father, he includes himself. That the Father rules over all. Verse 28. When all things are subjected to Him, that is Christ, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him, that is the Father. Who put all things in subjection under Him, that is Christ. That God may be all. You get the idea that this thing is much bigger than we think it is? You get the idea that the resurrection of Christ, which we celebrate this day, has far greater implications than we normally think it does. We have come today to celebrate Christ's resurrection, and yet Paul has shown us how Christ is the first fruits of those who would believe. We come and look at our future resurrection and Paul says even that resurrection points to something greater. It is part of the expressions of love between the members of the Trinity. As the Father gives this kingdom to the Son and the, kingdom gives the, kingdom, the Son gives the kingdom right back to the Father. And how do you know that your future resurrection is secure? Listen to me real carefully. On your deathbed. When you are ready to leave this world, how do you know? How do you know that you will rise again? You know not only because God has promised it, But you know because God has linked it. He has linked it to a great event in the past, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he has linked it to a great event in the future, which is the culmination of all things, which is the glory of the Father. For God to forsake the promise of resurrection would mean that Christ has not been raised And that the Father will not be glorified. And we know those two events are true and they are trustworthy. And so Jesus lives. And so shall we if we believe in him. Is it any wonder that Paul ends this chapter on a triumphant note? Saying in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 55. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer together. And let's close our time. Our Father, we are amazed once again at what we have seen in the pages of Scripture. We stand speechless at this breathtaking view of your grace. Thank you, Jesus, for dying for us on the cross. Thank you for rising triumphantly from the grave and thank you for the promise that because you rose we will rise as well all to the glory of God the Father Lord may these truths take root in our hearts and bear fruit may they give us strength and joy and courage and perseverance may we trust in Christ this day and proclaim He is our Lord and our God. We pray all this in Christ's precious name.